again, really grateful that we have this chance to come together, um, albeit just a, a few of us. Uh, we do know that uh, we've got um, more than a few of our folks who uh, ha have been ill over the past um, weeks or so. Uh, so we want to make sure that we are upholding them uh, in prayer um, as we always do, uh, but especially in this time uh, that God would uh, restore them, give them healing, bring them uh, to full restoration so they would be able to come and we'd join together with us um, in worshiping the Lord. So I want to thank Lucas for reading for us this morning. We're continuing on in Matthew uh, chapter 13 as we have been looking at the parables that Jesus has presented. We come now to the sixth parable, the parable of the pearl of great value. If you were here with us last week or you've been tracking along with us, you know that the, this parable comes right after a parable that's right before it. They kind of go together. Uh, last week, we looked at the parable of the hidden treasure. And if you remember from last week um, and you listen to what Lucas read for us this morning, you'll see that they are fundamentally very similar The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds something of great value, whether it be the hidden treasure in the previous parable or this pearl in this parable, and then what do they do? They sell everything they have to buy it. So these, this couplet of parables is focusing on the, the value of the kingdom, the costliness of, of the kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel are priceless and worth sacrificing for. We spent a lot of time last week sort of digging into that idea. But there are some differences between these parables that I think might lead us down some, some paths, different paths this morning. So in this particular parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a merchant who is looking for fine pearls and when he finds a particular one of great value, sells everything and buys it. So uh, this man, this merchant, um, if you look back into the culture and the context of the time, was most likely a wholesaler of sorts. So the word for merchant in the original Greek is emporos. It's the same word uh, that we derive the English word emporium from. So most likely as, as a wholesaler of sorts, what was this man doing? He would be traveling from city to city, searching through the markets, going through the fishing ports, the various uh, bazaars and fairs, looking for what? High-grade pearls to buy and then for resale. You can think about uh, it similarly to what people might do nowadays, and you see some of these shows, right, on uh, uh, on various channels about you know people hunting for antiques. You'll see they're they're searching through old barns and attics and estate sales. What are they looking for? They're hoping to find among all the secondhand stuff, maybe an overlooked treasure. Right, a diamond in the rough, or a, or a pearl in the rough, if you will. So if you think about pearls in Jesus' time, you could say that they were somewhat equivalent to what we would call, you know, what we would look at a diamond today. 
a well-formed pearl would be as valuable as any, any precious gem that you might have. The other thing about pearls is they make wealth, they made wealth very portable. Right? If you owned fine pearls, you owned really a, a fortune. Now, how did they, where did these pearls come from? Well, we know that they, they come from inside these, um, these shelled creatures like mollusks and uh, of that of the sort, right? A, a little grain of sand gets in there and it's irritating them. And what do they do? They secrete this material and that's how it forms. But how, how, do, how did they get the pearls? You actually had these pearl divers, these free divers that would head down into waters without a scuba mask, no wetsuit, right? None of that. They would head down into the depths of the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Indian Ocean, and they would head down, take a big breath and go down. A lot of folks died doing this sort of thing. At times they would tie a rock to their body so that they would be able to go all the way down, take one big long breath so they could descend as fast as they could, scour the bottom of the ocean floor or the sea floor in the mud and the mire and the muck looking for these oysters. And a single pearl of, of, that was perfect in size and beauty, it could be of an immense value. If you think back to Matthew chapter 7, when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and, he, and he's kind of talking to them about mission and what that can look like, and he tells them, do not cast your pearls before swine. What was Jesus doing there? He was really painting this absurd word picture to kind of tell them, you know, how foolish it is to reason with people that don't acknowledge that truth is a real thing. So his idea was there, who, who would ever expect, you know, a, a pig to appreciate something like as valuable as a pearl? So that was the idea. So you get an idea of what pearls meant in the society. So his merchant, he's looking for fine pearls to sell because they were kind of a reliable investment of the time. They increased in value as time went on. And you think about investing today and and what's what's the buzzword right when you when a wise investor uh, there's a buzzword that everyone tries to use right and you probably heard it and that's what diversify right you want to make sure you diversify well back then you know how you diversified we talked about this last week how people would put money in the ground so back then you diversified you put some money in the ground you put some money in pearls you put some money in land that's how you diversified and the one thing that smart investors do is that what? They don't put everything into one commodity. And that's interesting, right? Because in light of these two parables, what do we see? These two men did precisely what a savvy investor wouldn't do and they would warn against. The first man sold everything and bought what? One field. All his eggs in one basket. The second man sold everything and bought what? One pearl. Everything. All the eggs. One basket. So, 
we see there's some similarities between these parables, but there are some differences that I think lead us down some interesting paths. And the first idea that we get from the difference between these two parables is that not everybody comes to the kingdom in the same way, in the same approach. Right? The parables are very similar. You have an individual person. They find something of great value. Each understands its worth. Each is will willing to give up anything to obtain this treasure. But there is a difference in the two stories. Last week we talked about in the first parable, the man with the hidden treasure. How does he come upon this? He stumbles upon this. Is it the same with the merchant? No. The merchant is what he is searching. He is seeking after this pearl. He knows exactly what he's looking for. There's no reason to think the man in the field was looking for treasure. We talked about this last week. He was merely doing whatever he was in the process of doing. He was walking or working or plowing the field or building something, maybe farming, cultivating a crop. And while he was going about his business, he what? He stumbles on this fortune. And lots of people enter the kingdom that way. We talked about Apostle Paul last week. He wasn't really seeking to enter the kingdom. He assumed he was already in it. He was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. The next thing, what? God knocks him down, and he was redeemed. He was really satisfied in his own self-righteousness, Paul was. Until what? Until he stumbled upon this fortune that made all his religious accomplishments, as he puts it in Philippians 3.8, to put it politely, look like a, a sack of manure, right? That's how, he, that's how he explained it. Same thing with the Samaritan woman, if you think about her. She came to the well for what? For water. She wasn't seeking an encounter with Christ, but she met him there, and she went home redeemed. <coughs> lots of examples, lots of ways, and you might have seen it in, 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 in your life. Maybe that was your story, or maybe you've seen somebody with a similar story, seemingly unexpectedly, seemingly accidentally almost stumbling into the kingdom. The merchant, on the other hand, was specifically looking for pearls. He knew what he was seeking. He wanted something genuine. He wanted something of lasting value. And when I think of someone who falls into this category in Scripture, I, I think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he was a rabbi, and all, all his life he must have been searching for God's truth. We have that beautiful story of him encountering Jesus in the Gospel of John all the while searching for truth, Nicodemus. So the merchant represents someone who is knowingly seeking after truth, seeking after the kingdom, sort of being drawn to Christ in this sort of conscious quest for eternal life. Some come into it seemingly by accident. Others are, are seeking, they're searching, looking for something. Now, but in both cases, it is God who is sovereignly ordaining their discovery of 
Christ. See, he's going to deal with all of us as individuals. Ordering our steps, graciously granting to sinful hearts the will and the wisdom to see and appreciate this infinite value of the kingdom. But it happens in different ways. You might have uh, heard someone's story and thought, wow, it's just a remarkable testimony. And then you look into your own life and maybe think, well, I didn't go through any of that. And yet the miracle is, the miracle is that God will bring our dead spirits to life. Out of the depth of our sinfulness and our brokenness and our shame that God brings us to life. And no matter what that expression of it looks like on the outside, God gets the glory because he is at work. So what about this searching? What about this sort of looking for the kingdom? I think this sort of tells us that there is a place in Christianity for the mind that is seeking. Uh, The philosopher Plato said that the unexamined life is the life not worth living. I think that makes sense, right? There's, there's a duty upon us to think things through. Even if somebody stumbles upon the kingdom, seemingly, they still have to think it through. They still have to sort it out in their mind. Sort of figure out what this all means for, for him and his life. And in the process of this, there's going to be what? Questions and there are going to be doubts. And really, in this process of seeking and searching, no one should be ashamed of their doubts. A faith without doubts, you could compare to a body without antibodies in it. Right? What does an antibody do? Right? It's sort of picks up a a signal of the the infection that is within us and once it clears us out it it keeps that that marker and then the next time that thing comes into us that 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 illness it is able to attack and deal with it see a faith without doubts is like like a body that doesn't have antibodies in it people who will just go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe what they believe. And what's the harm? What's the harm in in approaching your spiritual life in this way? Well, you will find yourself defenseless when tragedy strikes. You will find yourself defenseless when, when the skeptic comes with the probing question. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they've failed to listen patiently to their doubts and not reflected on them and and run towards them and to dig into them. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with their doubts. 
it's not enough just to believe something because you inherited that belief. It's not going to be enough. I've seen it. People's faith collapse when trouble and sorrow and disaster has come because they have simply not thought it out. So it's, it's bad to suppress those doubts. But here's the thing, you know, Jesus is greater than your doubts. He is greater than every doubt that you might have. It's better to face them honestly because here it is. It's better to have one or two things which you believe in unquestionably than a whole bunch of things that the truth of it is vague to you. And here's something I do know. You can't start testing things in the storm. Don't wait to test it in the storm. The test should be applied long before that. Long before that. So there's a searching about the kingdom that I think we kind of see here in this parable. Also, I think in this parable, there's a, there's a sense of uh, adventure, if you will, for lack of a better, better word. That there's, there's a risk that's built in here when it comes to the kingdom of God. To give up everything for that one pearl of great Price. That's an action where if you just look at it, it looks, it looks kind of reckless. But this is sort of the idea here in this parable. Because think about Jesus' invitation, and we've, we've gone over it here in the Gospel of Matthew as we've, we've been working our way through, and what he has called his disciples to. What's Jesus' invitation to them? Follow me. Follow me. But it became clear that following him was what? It was a dangerous thing. It was a dangerous thing to follow him. The religious leaders were against him. The scribes, the Pharisees, the rulers, they wanted to eliminate him. The cause that he was for looked like it was a losing cause. The invitation that he was giving seemed like an invitation to, hey, just, you know, come on and, and die with me. So in this parable, when you think about this idea of, of risk, in a way, in a sense, Jesus was saying, are you willing to sacrifice everything, security, safety, comfort, your life to follow me? The willingness to risk, the willingness to risk is, is a key to the kingdom of God. And Jesus seems a lot wiser than his followers that will come later on. Because what's the tendency nowadays? The tendency nowadays is to play down the difficulty of Christianity. And rather, 
it's the ease of Christianity that's offered up as sort of this inducement to accept it. That people are not challenged with a gospel that requires anything of them or asks anything of them. And then you get a faith that kind of looks like that. So as I thought about this idea, I remembered a book that I had read uh, some time ago. It's called um, Almost Christian. And in it, it's, um, it's based on research that was done back in 2003 to 2005. It was the um, National Study of Youth and Religion. So basically, it was this broad study where they looked at 13 to 17-year-olds back in 2003 to 2005. So if you're somewhere in your 30s, this is talking about you, right, now. <clears throat> so it broadly looked at the religious habits, the spiritual life of 13 to 17-year-olds at the time across all faiths. And this book, Almost Christian, took just the data about Christians those Christian youth looked at it and said, what, what kind of conclusions could they draw? And what they found about those youth at that time was <clears throat> that they had a faith that most likely would not last path, past um, their high school time. Um, and they didn't hate Christianity. They were just indifferent to it. They didn't have a, a, a they didn't, at the time, they didn't have a, you know, like, oh, this is dumb. They just had this feeling like, it's just not vital to me. It's not urgent. I'm okay with it. I can do the practices, but none of this is vital. And in the study had a lot of insights, but I think a lot of it can kind of apply to beyond just the youth because what kind of gospel what are we what kind of gospel is a church attempting to preach what kind of gospel are you modeling to your children so i want to read a passage from it that i think kind of speaks to this idea of of risk in the kingdom and I'm just going to replace the teenagers with people here because I think it applies to everybody. But, but li listen, listen to what this says. It would be unlikely for people to develop any religious framework besides superficial Christianity if churches have supplanted the gospel with a religious outlook that functions primarily as a social lubricant with a quote-unquote God who supports people's decisions, makes them feel good about themselves, meets their needs when called upon, but otherwise stays out of the way. If this is the God we offer people, there may be little in Christianity to which they object, but there is even less to which they will be devoted. By contrast, the God portrayed in the Christian scriptures asks not just for commitment, but for our very lives. The God of the Bible traffics in life and death, not niceness, and calls for sacrificial love, not benign whateverism. If the God of Jesus Christ is a missionary God who crosses every boundary, life and death and space and time, to win us, then following Jesus is bound to be anything but convenient 
Jesus Christ doesn't tinker. He tears down walls, draws up new plans, makes demands. Have no other gods before me. Love one another as I have loved you. Leave your nets and follow me. Leave your nets and follow me. Where is the risk? Where is the sense that our faith is something that's urgent, that's something that's vital, as opposed to just something that we're tacking onto our life in the midst of a whole bunch of other things that we tack on into our life? It's interesting. I think about this motif that pops up in movies and art and literature all the time. You've seen it, I'm sure. There's a group of there's a group of men and there's a team and the leader stands up and says, All right, there's where we gotta go. It's gonna be hard. We're probably all gonna die. But I'm going. And then there's the team around him. And you've seen it in movies a hundred times, you see it in books, you see it everywhere. What happens usually? What's what happens? One by one each man goes gets up and goes, I'm with you. The next guy. Well, we might as well, right? The next guy. I'm not, I'm not going back that way. You've seen it a thousand times throughout art. Where does that come from? Why is that a, why is that a motif that pops up again and again? Why does that resonate with us so much? When we, you see that and you start welling up and you're like, oh, look at them. Look at them going in there. Right? What, what, what is that about? You, you know what? That's really the influence of the gospel. That's the influence of the Bible out into wider art and culture because this is something worth taking a risk for. This is something that, that matters, that it's going to matter whether you make this decision to go forward. And we see that fleshed out. That's why that connects with us because it's, it's these smaller stories that are connecting into this much larger story that means something. That there's an adventure to be had. There are risks to be taken for the gospel. So what about this seeking, right? As we are seeking after God, what does it look like? What are the characteristics as we come to Christ and now, you know, there, there's this tendency to become complacent, right? And just go, okay, well, you know, I've, you know, I know who God is and now I'm just going to go on with my life. What would it look like to continue to seek and search after God? What kind of characteristics should our life have in that respect? I think there are a few. One is an openness. So what does it mean to be open? It means that when you are seeking God, you'll, you won't try to restrict the ways in which God will work in you. It means that you won't try to limit God by being selective. We have to realize that we don't know everything. We have to be open to that. I think most of us would love for God's, you know, 
work in us to fall in our comfort zone, right? It's like, okay, God, yeah, work in me, but, you know, stay right in this convenient boundary. But we know it rarely works that way. That openness as we are searching and seeking after God means being willing to go where God tells us to go to get what we need. That we cannot enter into the zone of God's glory without leaving our own personal comfort zone. Don't, don't be that someone who says, well, if God shows up where I am, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll believe it. But if I have to go outside of my, my preset boundary, then, you know, I, you know, I can't really get with that. When you think about this man that was searching in the story, he searches, I believe, with an expectancy, with a certain openness. And all of us need to develop that sort of active expectancy in our walk with God, in our searching after God. No matter where you are in your walk, no matter how old you are or how young you are or how many years you've been walking, so an openness, that should characterize our seeking, our searching after God. What else should characterize our, our searching after God? I, I think intimacy is very important. So what does intimacy mean? Intimacy simply means what? A, a closeness of relationship, a closeness. So if you're really truly searching after God, seeking after Him, you will long for a greater intimacy with Him. So in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4.13, it talks about a, a description of Peter and John. This is what it says. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, this, this is in, in the early church stage, right? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was their takeaway. They looked at them and said, how are they doing this? Whoa. Oh, they were with Jesus. That, that's the takeaway that the people had. So when you think about intimacy and searching after God and what that looks like, the objective is to, to know the Lord, to strive after knowing the Lord better than you know anybody else. What, kind of, what would that look like in your life if that was your objective in seeking after God? To know the Lord better than you know anyone else. Now, but here's the mistake that could happen, right? And this is where pride comes in and our own, you know, selves can kind of twist things. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to know him better than anyone else knows him. <laughs> but that's, you know, kind of when our, our fleshly nature gets in the midst of it. That's what it turns into. That was Peter's, that was Peter's problem, right? You know, he longed to be close to Christ, but he viewed it from the lens, at least initially, of I'm going to be closer to him than anybody else. Right? He thought he was the one who knew the Lord best. 
That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Right? It's a subtle distinction, but I think it's important. Those who think they know the Lord better than everyone else, what do you see happen usually? They will stumble. They'll trip up. Right? That pride goes before the fall. That's not what we're talking about. What I am talking about is knowing God so well that your knowledge of others seems superficial by comparison. Think about that for a moment. Think about striving after a closeness with God so that when you think about it, you go, wow, that my relationship with my spouse in comparison seems superficial. That's something to strive after when we are searching after God, intimacy. And the last sort of characteristic when you think about seeking and searching after God is obedience. And it will often circle back to obedience. When I talk about obedience, I'm talking about an active obedience, not just kind of a a passive obedience. A passive obedience being just, you know, just doing what you're just doing what you're told. Like kind of like waiting like the man with the hidden treasure and say, you know, I'll just wait until I stumble onto the the, you know, this closeness with God. I'll just I'll just wait. How much do you want to know God. So the person who is passive in their obedience will maybe just go to their grave waiting for something to happen. But think think about if you've got children, think about, you know, um, think about when they do something and you have to tell them to do it versus when they just do it because they know that that brings you joy. They know that that makes your, your heart towards them grow. It's a big difference, right? You always tell you, hey, pick up the thing. They pick up the thing. They do it, but you're telling them every time, pick up the thing. And then finally you go and they say, oh, they did. And they do it. Why? Because they know that's they know you. They know you. And they know that is what you want. They know that that's what you value. They know that that's going to change your disposition. Do we approach our obedience with God in the same way? Are we out here just checking boxes? I'll just, I'll just go to church and go to the thing and or are we seeking to know God know him in his scripture know what he values know what 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 makes his heart turn towards people and then we gladly and with joy follow him and obey him it's a big difference it's active, not passive. Everything, you can get lost in the sovereignty of God, 
and miss how everything in Scripture talks about an active Christianity, an active faith. It's alive. Not passive. It's attentive. It's not postponing everything. It's anticipating. It's not assuming or taking anything for granted. You know, there are some that might say, one of these days, one of these days, you know, I'm going to get around to seeking, searching after God. I'll, you, know, I'll, you know, I'll get to it. One of these days? Why not, why not this day? Because <laughs> the days will roll. They will go. And the days will become months. And the months will become years. And the years will become decades. Make that decision to search after God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. Make that today. And as we'll come to, to close in a moment, I'll ask a simple question. In regards to your faith, when was the last time you took a risk? the last time you took a chance to do something you can you can think for yourself what it might be you know those moments when the spirit of god urges is urging you and calling you to do something and then we kind of demure when was the last time you took a tangible risk for the kingdom to talk to that person, to go to that place, to do that thing. So in the Middle Ages, predominantly around the 4th century or so, there was a, a group of, of men who their calling card was, was taking risks. And they were, these, this group of men, they were, they were within, they were Christians. And their calling card was taking chances, taking risks they were the ones that when the plague would break out or the illness would break out they were the ones that would go towards the sick people and care for them they were the ones that would you know bury the dead sick people and, and go there and, and touch those folks and be with those folks where there was trouble, wherever there was risk, wherever there where it was an opportunity for someone to take their life into their own hands and to help others, these men were there. And they had a name. Their name was called the Parabolani. The Parabolani, in an interesting twist, right? That comes from original Greek word parabole, which is the same word for parable. But another meaning for that same word in the Greek is to gamble, to risk, to an, an opportunity to expose yourself to risk, a, a risk, a gamble, parabole. So they were called the parabolani, the gamblers, essentially. That's what they were called. Oddly enough, same word. So 
In a way, this parable is about a parable, meaning a risk. A gamble of sorts. And there are some things, it's such a short parable, there are some things that we don't see but we know must be true. One, it says that the man was searching. That's all it says. But we know there must have been so much more behind that searching. How long was he searching? How far did he have to travel? How many missed opportunities were there? How many close but no cigar moments were there in that searching? All it says is he was searching, but we know that there is more to that searching. But even look at the pearl. Why is the pearl there? How did the pearl get there for this man? This man was doing all this searching to get to this particular moment so that he could find this pearl in that particular place. How did it get there? Well, think back to how these pearls were got some of the time. Think about that free diver. And as that man is searching and he's making his winding road to get to that place where he's going to find that, that free diver had to do what? Had to take that big breath, had to tie that stone to his leg, and had to plunge down into the depths, into the dark, into the cold, unforgiving waters, had to get down in the dirt and the muck and the grossness of the bottom and fish through and muddle through that just to find that that one oyster with that pearl and then would have to come back up and then break through the top and say here here it is he had to take that risk and because he did that pearl was there for that man to do all his searching and then to find it One of the only times I can think about gambling going on in the Bible is where? At the foot of the cross. What do the soldiers do at the foot of the cross? They're there casting lots for his clothes. They're gambling. Not really high stakes, right? They've got some homeless man's clothes that they're... (laughs) I guess they had thought they had nothing better to do. But they are there. And then they say they, they are there at the foot of the cross watching. Gambling. And then you look up at the cross. What were the stakes? What were the stakes upon the Jesus upon the cross? What was at stake when Jesus was on the cross? The very glory of God at stake. Your redemption, your salvation at stake. The highest stakes there could be. Jesus upon the cross. When you look at Jesus, what do we see? What what does he do? He plunges down into the depths of our shame, of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, of our wickedness, he upon the cross, he plunges down into 
the teeth of death itself. Only to what? To rise up on the third day with the prize, with the pearl. Redemption secured for you and me. And what would it look like for Jesus to plunge down and come up only for us to say, you know, I can't really take the risk. Uh, what, what will people, what, what might, I can't really risk my reputation. What will the people say? I can't risk my, my wealth. I can't risk my whatever. How silly does that look for us into the moment to say, I can't take that risk. No. Today is the day to take a risk for the kingdom. And I will tell you, it will be worth it. Jesus tells us that it will be worth it. Amen. Let's stand our feet together. We're going to um, take an opportunity to pray. And we'll close shortly this morning. Thank you, Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, God, and the wisdom that you seek to impart to us. Lord, we thank you for these parables that you have enabled us to hear and understand. We thank you for the great gift that they are to us, the understanding that you give us, Lord. Lord, I thank you that there are different ways to come to you. And Lord, first we acknowledge whatever way it was that we found you, whether through some miraculous sort of external event or whether it was through the a more gradual searching and longing and grasping. Whichever way, Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us, that you have pursued us, that you have called us, that you have found us, Lord. We thank you no matter which way, Lord. Lord, we pray that you'd help us in our walk with you Help us not to settle for a, a Christianity that's, that's limp and not vital and not urgent. Lord, I pray that you'd help today to be the day for each of us to look into our own walk and to have an active obedience to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What risk is it that you want me to take for you? 
Will you give us the grace, the wisdom, the insight, the mercy, the courage, Lord, to do that without delay? Lord, and as we do that, help us to do that with our eyes fixed, fixed upon your son Jesus upon the cross. That when it becomes difficult, when, when these decisions become challenging, when there is hurt, when there is pain in the midst of this searching after you, help us to uh, have our hands steady on the plow and our eyes fixed upon the cross where you where you secured for us the kingdom, Lord. Won't you help us? Help us as individuals. Help us as parents. Help us as uh, ministers and your servants. Help us as a church. Help us as your people to be people of the kingdom who would risk it all for you. We thank you. We praise you. And we glorify your name. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.